Thank you. Well, good morning. Beautiful spring weather, isn't it? Who was in the garden yesterday? Yes, we, we uh, slaved away in the garden for a few hours, pulling a few weeds. Always a, always a good thing on a lovely day. Interesting, uh, this week I've been considering a, a phrase from Socrates. And you'll say, well, why would you consider a phrase from Socrates? Well, he said this, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. And you know, this statement uh, rings true because things tend to get in the way and get very complicated over time. You know, we begin our Christian life with utter delight and simplicity. You come to faith in Christ and it's, it's a delightful experience and things are very simple. But over time, tradition, religion, others' expectations, all begin to pile up on top of us and what was originally there in its simple form just gets lost. Jules and I, um, a few years ago, had a, a wonderful opportunity to go to Israel. And uh, we had an opportunity to host a, a busload of people. And it's interesting, as we hosted uh, these folks in, in the Holy Land, many people had gone to Israel so they could walk where Jesus walked. And uh, they'd often say to the guide as we were walking around Jerusalem, well, did Jesus walk here? And, you know, the uh, dishonest guide would would shake their head and say, yes. Um, and probably Jesus walked there because there's a church there and there's a building there. But the honest guy would say something completely different. The honest guy would take you over to a cliff and, and you'd lean over and you'd see four or five metres down and he'd say, well, perhaps Jesus walked there because... Wars has ravaged this place and, you know, there's been destruction over many years and potentially that's maybe where, where Jesus walks. And so what, what you get over, over time, you realise that because of the passing of time, because of numerous wars, because of the sands of time have slowly covered multiple feet of the original site, you're probably not on the original. But there's one place that I think in the whole tour of Israel that you could say, yes, Jesus walked there. You and I can't walk there, but Jesus did. The Sea of Galilee. As you float on the Sea of Galilee and as you you uh, look at the, the vista, there's no way to build a church over the top of the Sea of Galilee. There's no pile of rubbish or, or stacks of debris or, or rocks for people to kiss. All the stuff and the tradition and the religious veneer is absent. You just have this beautiful lake. It's just water. It's the same surface that Jesus walked on. There you see the same shore where, where Jesus called his disciples to leave their nets and follow him. And it was an amazing feeling to be there. Because it felt authentic. 
My question to you today has, has your walk, has your Christian walk with Christ become buried beneath the veneer of tradition, beneath the veneer of expectations? Has it become buried with the experience of heartbreak over relationships, over unbelieving children, over overwhelming obstacles, even over poor decisions? You see, when life is like that, it's easy to lose your way. That's why we need to consistently re-examine our lives. That's why we consistently need to return to the basics. We need to get back to the basics. This is what the series is about. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's getting back to the basics. We're learning that our motivation for our walk is always based on what God has done through Christ. We're learning that it's by God's grace he continues to empower us through his spirit to walk, to master the basics. In fact, it's the gospel itself that compels our obedience. Let's read this morning today's text. I'm going to read from where we did last week and incorporate... Uh, today's text. So if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you look at Ephesians 4, we'll start at uh, verse 17 and read, read through to Ephesians 5 verse 2. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, it's Ephesians 4 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let sin go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Last week, we looked at the previous paragraph from, from verse uh, 17 or verse 17 through to verse 24. And this outlined three fundamental aspects of the gospel tradition that have been passed on to believers. They outlined that the things that they had been taught were surrounded in, in three ways. And the instruction was to put off the old self, to be renewed in your minds, and to put on the new self. So what Paul now does as he continues this uh, instruction to these Ephesians, he moves from these broad descriptions of putting off and putting on. You know, it's a metaphor of taking on, taking off clothing. He, he, moves from this imagery or he maintains this imagery and now he focuses on some tangible issues. He's drawing them back to the basics. He said, if you are identified with Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, then this is what it looks like. And he gives us a list of vices and virtues. Right? There are 13 commands in this paragraph alone. 13. And there's one phrase there which is not actually a a perfect command, but it has the force of a command. So there's 14 commands. He's moving his thought from the lofty heights of learning about Christ and being part of the new creation to the nitty-gritty of the Christian life. So this is what Christian behaviour looks like. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what it looks like. See, within the context of this, this book of Ephesians and, and in the context of most of Paul's writings, he always considers the old person as vices. When he talks about walking in the flesh, he talks about the old nature, the unregenerate nature, and he always has that as, as a, in a term of a vice. But the virtues are always produced in the new person through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, all virtues, right throughout Paul's writings, are about God's gift of grace in your life to make you grow and develop. They're part of the workmanship that God describes in in chapter 2, verse 10. And the result of these works is always reflected in the believer as we we walk this walk step by step, growing in Christ-likeness. You see, none of these virtues earn you anything. I must say that again and again and again. None of these virtues earn you anything. They're a response to what God has done. They're an absolute pure response to what God has done. These are it's walking in obedience. It's walking in the power of the Spirit. They earn no merit at all. 
and particularly verse 25 through to 5 too, in the context, all these commands, all these virtues are a result of walking in love. If you want to know what it means to walk in love in Christian community, to walk in love in the Ephesian context, to walk in love in the Montmorency context, or where I'm from, the Canterbury Gardens context, this is what it means to walk in love with one another. These are the marks, these are the basics about how we should respond in community because of what Christ has done for us. And these are challenging. These are challenging. They're not a simple thing. So therefore it has to be done in the power of the Spirit. Because in our own flesh we don't want to walk that way. So let's uh, dive into these and have a a little bit of a closer look uh, this morning. Verse 25, Therefore laying aside falsehood, or better some other translations, or put away or put off falsehood, uh, speak truth each one of you with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. So right at the start we, we have this, these, this, these sections are linked through this term putting off. It's the same metaphor, put off, put on. Put off falsehood, put on speaking truth with each other. That's what's going on here. And the command here is to speak the truth with your neighbour. Now it's interesting because this particular first line here, speak truth with each one of, of you, is a direct direct uh, Old Testament quote. In this section there are four, uh, three Old Testament quotes which Paul uses to expand what he's really getting at. Here he uses a quote from Zechariah chapter 8 verse 16. So for us to really understand this we need to have a little bit of understanding of why would he use this quote? What's the context of Zechariah 8.16? See broadly speaking uh, Zechariah 7 and 8, those two chapters, uh, uh, chapter 7 particularly offers a negative response to questions about fasting. And chapter 8 balances the the harsh tones of chapter 7 with emphatic insurances about God's certain blessing for Israel's future. These oracles in in Zechariah intend to really balance the, the theological points between judgment and promise. You see, in Zechariah's time, the nation was in exile. And Zechariah was one of those prophets who was calling them back and saying, hey, come and rebuild the temple. Come and um, come back into the sanctuary. Come back and, and be blessed by the Lord. So just turn back there to Zechariah. I just want to, to note just one thing with you this morning, which I think is important with understanding why Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 4. So Zechariah chapter 8. Particularly start looking at verse 11. The actual quote that we're discussing is found in verse 16, but it gives great context when we go back to verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant, verse 11 says, but now, this is God speaking, I will not deal with the remnant of his people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. 
For there shall be a sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of his people to possess all these things. Major blessings going to pour out. There's going to be wine, there's going to be food, there's going to be produce, there's going to be rain. These are things of blessing. And as you have, verse 13, and as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus said the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Fear not. These, these are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So what you have here in these two verses, 16 and 17, where this quote is, is God's saying to the people, this is your response to my unconditional love and favour. It's just stated to them that I'm going to save you. I'm going to pour out blessing upon you. It's unconditional. Don't fear. I am with you. Remember they're in exile. I'm with you. I'm there. I'm going to restore all blessings back to you. Does the nation have any part of that? No. It was God's gracious act. And then... The Lord outlines responsibility. Because of this, because of the saving grace that I'm pouring out, this is how you are to respond. Speak the truth with one another. Judge correctly. Don't desire, you know, devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath or promise. And the same ethical response is commanded by Paul to the Ephesians. In chapter 4. That's why he draws it out here. That's why he says, Put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Your walk should be marked by love, and one of the key marks of love is truthfulness amongst you. Because that's showing the heart of Christ. It's noted earlier in Ephesians, if you, you go back a little bit in chapter 4, the importance of this principle. Ephesians uh, 4, verse 15. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds up in love. Truth and love go hand in hand. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes when we speak the truth and love, it's a difficult conflict. But we speak the truth and love because Christ is shaping our speech. The body and the church should be a model of harmonious relationships. A model of harmonious relationships. This Christ is our head. There is no, and because of that, there is 
no other place for anything other than truth. So that's the first set of commands. The first vice and virtue. The vice is falsehood. The virtue is speaking the truth with one another. And notice this is within community, it's within Christian community. Paul is talking to the Ephesian church here, and by extension he's talking to us. This principle is primarily, all these principles are primarily within community. Yes, there's an effect outside community, but these are in community. Why? Earlier in chapter 4, the principle is unity. We've been built up in unified love. Secondly, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not grieve the dev- and do not give the devil an opportunity. Once again, Paul uses an Old Testament quote. The Old Testament quote is be angry and do not sin. It comes out of Psalm chapter 4. If you look at the psalm, in Psalm chapter 4, we won't read it, but what is happening there, the psalmist has been accused in an unjust manner of some crime or sin. And though he knows he's innocent, though the psalmist knows he is innocent, the reproach of these things is weighing really heavily on him. So what does he do? He prays. And what happens is God replaces his anger which is the result of lies from others. We read that in Psalm 4 too, giving him instead a heart full of joy and peace. And the psalmist admonishes in verse 4 where he uses this quote, he admonishes his hearers as he further consoles and strengthens himself not to sin in their anger. Paul now does the same thing uh, with this instruction to the Ephesians. He urges them, you are, you are a new creation, you are in Christ. This is the, the fundamental thing on all these instructions is that you are in Christ because you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling. You're in Him. And he, he urges as part of the new self to be angry and not sin. He's not saying you're not allowed any anger. Please note that. Because righteous anger is okay. Righteous anger is perfectly okay. It's a God-given emotion. We should get angry about when we see an injustice. We should get angry when we see evil. We should get angry when we see cruelty and insensitivity towards others. The issue here he is talking about is he's not forbidding of anger but the sinful expression of anger. This is an important point. He's saying, don't allow your anger, avoid your anger turning into sin. Avoid that. Don't allow your anger to become a brooding cesspool of malice and bitterness and those sorts of things and he says that in two ways 
says, don't sin in your anger. He puts a time limit on it, doesn't he? He puts a time-imposed limit. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. This is sort of like a New Testament proverb. Okay? And he's explaining that if you brood, if you stir over this anger, it is going to be sinful. So deal with it as quickly as you can. It's a great principle when it comes to any form of conflict. You need to deal with it as quickly as possible. And when anger is dealt with promptly, then the result is you give no opportunity for the devil to exert his influence. That's what the balance of the verse says. Give no opportunity to the devil. Some translations give give the devil no foothold in this. When you sin in your anger, you're giving the devil a foothold. The devil's not making you sin. You are. But he's just using that and he, he, he explodes it out into wrath, into malice, into many other things as we'll read later in the, in the text. So that's the, the second virtue and vice. Thirdly, we move down to verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So walking in love is about not stealing, but working hard. Now there's a the major contextual thing going on here with the Ephesian believers and the structure of Ephesus itself. Ephesus is a multicultural city, um, Ephesus here because the believers are putting their faith in Christ who are being cut off from different forms of work and things like that they were finding it difficult to make a living because they were being removed from different guilds because of their faith in Christ we read that in historical documents but in many ways this is a really self-explanatory statement isn't it he tells the Ephesian believers that whatever their practices were previously, if they stole things to, to even feed themselves, if they stole things to, to make a living, stop it. Because that's not what you do as a follower of Christ. You are to cease these things. And the virtue is do honest work. Work hard. And not only work hard, work hard with the purpose that while you're working is so you can be generous to others. So you can be generous to others. See, the, the term work here in the original context denotes labour to the point of weariness. And I would even go as far as say, read between the lines, there's no retirement. Sorry. <laughs> There is no retirement in God's work. There is no retirement in our walking in love, is there? Labour to the point of weariness. And this provides a contrast for what was previously going on. Because previously there was really little effort in actually uh, gaining (laughs) some manna, gaining some dollars because you would just thieve it. He's saying, no, I want you to work hard, I want you to be diligent, 
I want you to have honest toil. And the purpose of this is so you can be generous. What a liberating thing when we think of our work so we can have generosity to others. That's walking in love. And in the context, generosity to others is in the community of faith. Now, this is probably, you know, we can apply this. We can apply this really quite pertinently to to our situation. When you work, are you working as unto the Lord? Do you work with honesty? Do you labour to a point of weariness? Do you consider the work you do as something that is done so you can be generous to others? And it doesn't have to be a financial generosity, it's a time generosity. So I know there's many retired in this congregation, so actually are you generous with your time in, in, in putting to others' lives amongst the community of faith? For those of us who do work for employers or employees, are you stealing time? Are you stealing resources? These are pertinent questions. Because as a follower of Christ, you should be the number one example in your workplace for being, for being diligent, for being on time, and for working hard. Let's look at the next virtue and vice. This is in uh, verse 29. And he uh, returns to the speaking vices and virtues here. We started this in verse 25, you know, put away falsehood, but speak the truth with his neighbour. Now verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He moves back to the issue of speech. Earlier we saw the command to speak the truth and to put away falsehood. Now he concentrates on evil and good speech. In contrast to the previous verse where he was showing that the new person, the one who walks in love, not only does well with their hands but will work well with their hands, but here he's saying they'll also have a well-seasoned speech. Now this is this here is all about being free from an unwholesome language. They should utter no word that's harmful. It's really interesting. The word here that's translated corrupting talk. I did a little bit of word study on it. It's fascinating. Because uh in a literal sense, the word for corrupting here is found in Matthew seven, seventeen and eighteen. And Matthew twelve thirty three and thirty four. And can you have a guess what it's talking about? I'll tell you anyway. In the literal sense, it's talking about rotten fruit and rotten fish. So corrupting, in its literal sense, is rotten fruit and rotten fish. So now he's using in a metaphorical sense, he's using it as a picture language, don't let your talk be like that. Don't let it be like rotten fruit and rotten fish. 
And he's describing a broad range of harmful speech. It's not just one form of speech, it's a broad range. It could be abusive language, it could be vulgar speech, it could be slander, it could be just contemporaneous talk, it could, could be just any range of things that tear people down. Because the contrast here, the virtue is that our speech should be a speech that edifies others. It should, our speech should build one another up. Our speech should be incredibly encouraging to those in the household of faith. We should rejoice with one another that we are sons and daughters of the living God. We should rejoice with one another that his grace is in our lives to shape us, to enable us to walk, to enable us to honour him in everything we do. You see, the purpose of edifying speech here is what? To infer grace on those who hear it. Have a think about that. As you chat amongst yourselves, are you inferring grace on the one who hears? Are you being encouraging, truthful, doing all things in love? You see, the New Testament picture is our words represent who we serve. Think about that. Our words represent who we serve. And as we serve Christ, our words should be seasoned with grace. Because Christ himself was full of what? Grace and truth. And as we follow him, his empowering spirit enables us to be full of grace and truth. Fifthly, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This is the third time he uses an Old Testament quote. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption is the entire verse. The first part of it, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, is from a quote in Isaiah chapter 63 verse 10. Now Isaiah 63 is a, is a chapter that recalls the Exodus and how God delivered his people by his presence. But it also recalls the fact that even though God did that, Israel rebelled and provoked his Holy Spirit. But even though the people rebelled and grieved the Spirit, nevertheless Yahweh placed his Holy Spirit in the midst of his people to deliver them and give them rest. As you read uh, Isaiah 63, that's what you'll come to. That's the conclusion you'll come to. Paul therefore uses this quote and instructs the Ephesian believers not to grieve the Holy Spirit as Israel had done. The part of Isaiah 63, the front part, they had grieved him. They rebelled against him. They served other gods. In my home church, we're going through uh, judges at the moment. And it's incredible the amount of times that the people just turn and worship other gods. They cry out in pity to God. God raises up a judge, gives them rest, and as soon as that judge dies, guess what happens? They immediately turn to worship the Baals. Man's heart is hard. and It's cold. And Paul uses it similar here. He says, okay, you Ephesian believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit as Israel had done in the wilderness. Don't do it. 
You see, the Ephesians are described as a new covenant community. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, comprising of Jews and Gentiles who have been redeemed by Christ. They become a holy temple in the Lord, a place where God himself dwells by his spirit. You read that at the back end of chapter 2. Not only is this position so secure, it is secure because it's sealed by the Spirit of God himself. No one or nothing can take God's salvation away from the believer. And he says, just don't grieve the Spirit. And when you, when you practice things, when you look at this list previously, you are grieving the Spirit when you walk in falsehood, when you sin, when you steal, when you use corrupting talk. All these things grieve God's Spirit. He said, you have the power of the Spirit in your lives to develop the virtue that enables you to live in the power of the Spirit, to walk in the power of the Spirit and to crucify the flesh. Another point he makes here in verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away. We get that again. That started in verse 25. Put away these things from among you, along with all malice. And the command, the virtue, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This uh, set of commands here in these two verses return to the topic again of anger. There is a call to remove the anger. The anger type vices. Remove the stuff that is bitterness. Remove the stuff that is wrath. Remove the stuff that is clamour, slander and malice. Remove those things. And there's an exhortation to put on kindness, tender-heartedness and forgiveness. How can we put on Kindness, tender-hearted and forgiveness by focusing on what Christ has done for us. That's what the verse tells us. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A motivation for this virtue is the indicative, is the grammar of the gospel. It's because what Christ has done for you which enables us to put these things on. And finally, he concludes this section in the first two verses of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. These verses summarise the preceding virtues and vices. This is the only time in Paul's writing that he commands anybody to be an imitator of God. And this is appeals based on the relationship that the Ephesians have in God's family. A relationship based on the saving work in Christ, as verse 2 shows us. To walk in love is to imitate God. But together, to walk in love is to imitate God. And you see, what Paul has done throughout this chapter 4 and 5 is 
He's urged them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, 4 verse 1. 4 verse 17, their walk is to be a walk of holiness and not as the Gentiles live. And here, they're now urged to walk a life of love. And we've just discussed what a life of love looks like. It's to put on the new self. It's to put on the virtues of grace, such as truthfulness, righteous anger, honesty, generosity, our speech seasoned with grace, kind-heartedness, tenderness, forgiveness. When this is done, the Holy Spirit's not grieved. And the renewing of the spirit of the mind is ongoing. When we put on these things, we are gospel-centered. This is what the gospel looks like in action. This is the gospel in action. See, the gospel is not a one-time event. The gospel is an all-life event. That's back to the basics. The gospel is an all-life event. The impact of the gospel is evident in the way we walk, the way we think, and the way we act. The way we speak and any other thing that we see in this list. Folks, let's walk in love. Let's be a people who are known to walk in love for the power of the Spirit. I'm going to give you a moment to pray. Because these things aren't easy. You can have some silent time just to come before the Lord and and say, Lord, let me be infused by the power of your spirit to be obedient to the grace in my life to walk the way you have designed us to walk. So I'll give you a few moments to pray and then I'll round off. pray together gracious God and heavenly father we thank you that you provide your spirit within us to comfort us to encourage us to refine us to rebuke us and father as we we've looked at these this list of virtues and vices this morning draw our hearts back to the basics we pray Empower us by your spirit to be truthful. To be imitators of God. To walk in love. To display the fruit of the spirit in our everyday lives. In our everyday interactions. Father, allow us not to allow the devil to have a foothold in our anger. Father, allow us to just be your servants and to each day uh, have our minds renewed by the beauty and the power of the gospel we thank you you never leave us or forsake us we thank you that your spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption 
We thank you we are secure in the knowledge that, uh, that you have saved us. Now, Father, we cry out, enable us not to be like the, the Israelites who so often turned away. But, Father, help us through the power of your Spirit to consistently walk in love. This we pray now in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen.